All right. Well, it is 9.30. I think we can go ahead and get started. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we will jump into our lesson this morning. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning. I ask that you would be with us as we look into your word. Give us grace this morning. We need your grace to be able to understand your word, to see the depths of our own sin, to see the incredible heights of your love. I ask that you would um, just give us that grace, uh, help us to see Jesus Christ, and Lord, move us with the truth of Scripture, give us understanding, and and help us as we go out and read your word on our own after this. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, well, this morning, we are going to be looking briefly at the book of Ezekiel. Book of Ezekiel. That is after Lamentations, before the book of Daniel. It's fairly easy to find. It's 48 chapters, and so you'll probably be able to find it just browsing through and kind of hitting the middle of it. And there are few books as difficult to read as the book of Ezekiel. Part of this has to do with the subject matter, as Ezekiel contains some of the most graphic, grotesque descriptions of sin you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And so in that sense, it's hard to read because it's kind of repulsive. Another difficulty comes from the abundance of imagery and visions that stretch the mind and the imagination. And finally, there's an abundance of difficult to pin down future events described that have led to an even greater abundance of interpretations. And the imagery and the future events make it hard to read since it's hard to understand. And so if you have made it to Ezekiel in your Bible reading plan this year, I wouldn't be surprised if you've had an expression on your face that ranged from squeamishness to puzzlement as you get through the book. And I think there's a specific reason for why it's so hard to read that has to do actually with the purpose of the entire book. And so understanding the purpose of Ezekiel won't help us understand every specific detail of the book, but it will help us make sense of why it's such a hard book to read and push us on to continue to read it even with that difficulty. So what is that purpose of Ezekiel? Well, I'll tell you in a second. I'm not going to give it to you to write down right now. First, we need to review a bit of the background of the book to understand how, uh, how it's set up. Then we'll, then we'll discuss the purpose and how it's evidenced in several different themes throughout the book. And then finally, we'll briefly walk through how that purpose and the different themes that are prominent are fleshed out in the outline of the book. So first, let's look at the background. The author and the namesake of the book is the prophet Ezekiel, which means God strengthens. And you'll get to see God strengthening Ezekiel many times throughout the book. Ezekiel is identified in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And from this, we can learn several things about Ezekiel. First, he was a priest. This is important because we see that he writes with the eye of a faithful priest, He is one who knows how egregious the sin of Judah was, especially when it came to their violation and desecration of the temple. Ezekiel heavily emphasizes holiness and cleanness and the glory of the Lord, which are all things that he would have known well as a priest in the line of priests. 
Now, when verse 1 says that this occurred in the 30th year, that indicates how old Ezekiel was at the time of the writing. And this is significant because Numbers 4.3 tells us that priests served in the priesthood from age 30 to age 50. And so Ezekiel was just beginning the service that he had waited his entire life to enter. But there's a problem. Because Ezekiel is not ministering in the temple in Jerusalem. He is in the land of the Chaldeans in Babylon. Ezekiel was born at the very end of the southern kingdom of Judah, just in time to see God use the global superpower of Babylon to judge Judah and exile them. And this exile happened in three stages. The first occurred in 605 BC, where 2 Kings 24, 1 and 2, and Daniel 1, 1 through 6 describe how there was great treasure that was taken to Babylon, as well as some select powerful people like Daniel. The second stage of that exile was in 597 BC, which was recorded in 2 Kings 24, verses 10 through 16. And in this exile, more plunder was taken, along with King Jehoiakim and 10,000 other prominent citizens, of whom Ezekiel was one. The final deportation occurred in 586 BC, when Jerusalem was destroyed, and all but the poorest were taken back to Babylon. And it's important to understand these stages of deportation in this exile because they're actually integral to the dating of the book of Ezekiel. And that dating of the book helps us to understand the message of the book. Ezekiel was taken in the second of these three exiles where he says in verse 2 of chapter 1, On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. And this is the first of 13 different settings, different time stamps that Ezekiel gives for his prophecies throughout the book. They are all in relation to the second exile in 597 BC. That is the, the dating mark that he uses as the standard for all of his prophecies. So whenever you read one of the introductions that says, in this year, on this date, in this month, it is always that many years after that exile in 597 BC. Now, other than two prophecies against Egypt that are in chapter 29, which are placed there because of the similar subject matter of the rest of the book, all of the book of Ezekiel is placed in chronological order. And as we match the chronology of Ezekiel to the chronology of the history of Israel, we can actually understand the book better. Ezekiel begins five years after the second exile, so he begins writing around 592 B.C., when Ezekiel first sees a vision from God and he's called to write it. And at this point, select people from Judah had been taken in the first and second deportation, but Judah was still functioning as a kingdom. Babylon had installed puppet rulers, but Judah was still operating economically, politically, religiously. And amongst those who were not deported, there was an arrogant spirit. Uh, there were people who were believing false prophets who were saying that, oh, we weren't deported because we were righteous. God's judgment is done. They took all the bad people to Babylon, but those who are here were good, and now he's going to restore us. In reality, though, those who were remaining in Judah were walking abominations who defiled all that they touched. And God chose to use Ezekiel to deliver the message that the people were mistaken and that their continuing sin would be swiftly addressed. Now, Ezekiel prophesied all the words of his book while he was living in Babylon. So he didn't speak directly to those who were still in Judah. But it's possible that his words were transmitted back to Judah as warnings. 
However, it, it seems that his main audience is the exiles who are still in Babylon with him. That's mainly who he's speaking to. And these exiles were commanded to turn away from their deeds, which had led them into exile. They were called to humble themselves before God. And it's likely that many of these people who were in exile had heard the message of the false prophets who were in Judah between the first and second deportation and had carried that message with them to Babylon or else had heard rumors of what was happening back home. And these exiles were in danger of minimizing their sin and expecting a swift return home from Babylon. But Ezekiel warns them that before it gets better, it's going to get worse, much, much worse. And that is where the third deportation comes place. This deportation included the siege and ultimate destruction of Jerusalem, which was not only the capital city, but was also the symbol of power and prestige. It was the religious center, the place of God's very presence amongst his people in the holy temple. And it was destroyed. And this final stage of the deportation in 586 BC is actually the fulcrum for the structure of the entire book of Ezekiel. Throughout the first 23 chapters, he consistently predicts that God's judgment will come and destroy Jerusalem. And then in chapter 24, God tells Ezekiel that Jerusalem is indeed under siege, and God's word of judgment is being fulfilled. The siege of Jerusalem continues as a center point for chapters 25 through 32, where Ezekiel turns his attention to the nations around Jerusalem. And then the most poignant way we see the siege in the background of Ezekiel is in chapter 33. The exiles knew that the siege had been raging in their homeland for several years at this point, but they did not know what the outcome was. But chapter 33, verse 21, tells us, in the twelfth year of our exile, so roughly 585 B.C., in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came and had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. And chapter 33 brings the news that the exiles were dreading. Their nation had fallen. The temple had been desecrated. But in God's incredible love and mercy and in his sovereignty, God used one messenger, Ezekiel, to speak messages of hope before this second messenger, this fugitive from Jerusalem, had arrived. Because merely hours before this fugitive came and proclaimed this destruction, God gave Ezekiel the messages recorded in chapter 34 through 39. As the exiles waited in suspense, knowing that their homeland was under attack, but not knowing the details or the outcome, Perhaps even as they gathered together around their faithful prophet and priest, Ezekiel, as they sat in fear and trepidation, God gives Ezekiel some of the most hope-filled messages in the entire Bible. Ezekiel says that he received these messages in the evening, and the messenger came in the morning. So it's perhaps not too far-fetched to imagine him speaking these words of comfort and hope throughout the night, as the exiles nervously awaited the news that would come with the morning light. So that is the background of Ezekiel. An exiled priest receives God's message of judgment and hope and proclaims it to those who are in exile with him. That is the background. And now with that background, we're better equipped to discuss God's purpose 
for the book of Ezekiel. Now, as you read through this book, there is a phrase that you should underline because it occurs over and over and over. It's, you can't miss it as you read through. And that phrase is, then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This phrase occurs over 65 times in these 48 chapters. And it sounds the tune that resounds throughout the entire book. As a result of God's words and deeds, everyone is going to know who God is. God is revealing his nature, his glory, his character, his heart. No one will be able to deny who God is, and any who rejects him will die in their foolishness. This is the purpose of Ezekiel, that everyone will know that God is the Lord. And this purpose helps explain why Ezekiel is such a hard book to read. First, it's impossible to capture the full nature of God. It's impossible to understand that. Ezekiel's visions in chapters 1 through 3 leave us scratching our heads as he describes wheels inside of wheels and terrifying angelic beings and creatures and spirits and fires. But what would you expect when a mere human is asked to capture what he is seeing in front of him as God reveals his glory in shocking clarity? You'll notice Ezekiel saying things quite often like, its appearance was like as he kind of searches for words to describe what he's seen. He's doing the best he can to describe God, but this side of glory, when God reveals his true self, we are still left dumbfounded, trying to grasp the magnitude of what is before us. Knowing that God is revealing himself helps us understand why there are so many gory descriptions of sin as well. God does not hold back. He doesn't pull punches. He is demonstrating the depth of his holiness, the extent of his righteousness, the significance of his wrath against sin. Sin isn't a little black mark for him. It's not a little mistake. It's betrayal, treason, infidelity, the worst form of deviance. The descriptions of sin in chapters, especially like chapter 16 or 23, are truly uncomfortable to read, but they're uncomfortable because they show us how God really feels about sin. And as God reveals himself and his plan, it's also to be expected that we would have some questions regarding his plans for the future. We would do things very differently than God, and so when he tells us his plan for the final judgment of his enemies and the restoration of his people, we may balk at some of the details. But it's helpful to take a step back and remember that even if we don't understand every detail of what he's intending to do, we can still see the heart behind his plan, that God is pouring himself out to the people so that they will know that he is the Lord. That is the purpose of Ezekiel. And this heart desire of God that he wants to reveal himself and show who he is so that everyone will know, we can see that in several of the prominent themes that occur over and over throughout the book. I'm going to list five of them. The first and most prominent theme is God's glory. And this is the first topic that Ezekiel introduces in chapter 1 as God gives him the first vision of himself. I want to read verses 26 through 28 of chapter 1. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated on the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. 
and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This was the first of six different occasions when Ezekiel falls on his face at the overwhelming glory of God that is revealed before him. And this glory serves as the backdrop for the entire book. It defines God's nature that he is seeking to reveal to Judah and to the nations. God is glorious, and he will not see his glory diminished. It is God's glory that is the main reason why he punishes sin. The people of Judah are worshiping idols and giving glory to these false images. They're giving the glory that only God deserves to something that does not deserve it. And worse, the place where God's glory resided the Holy of Holies in the temple, served as the location for much of this false worship in Judah. Chapter 8 describes the egregious abominations of the priests who in the temple literally turned their back on God and his presence in order to worship the sun itself, bowing down in the presence of God but rejecting him to worship God's creation. God is so glorious, and the sin is so blasphemous, that he departs in his glory from the temple, a scene that is described in chapter 10. But God's glory does not just drive his judgment. It also drives his message to the nations. The nations scoff at Judah's judgment, inferring that they have rebelled against God because God, has not, God is not strong enough, and he had to punish them because he wasn't strong enough to keep them pure. And God swiftly rebukes the nations and describes just how, control, how in control he is. He is not just a puny God who is comparable to these false gods of the nations. He is the glorious God of Israel who is judged, but who will also restore out of his glory. The nations will know that God is the Lord, and he is glorious. And this glory drives the closing chapters of the book as well as God receives glory from the exorbitant love that he lavishes upon Israel. And amazingly, the final nine chapters describe God's glory, which he had withdrawn from the temple earlier, now returning in magnificent fashion to dwell amongst his people again. Not because of anything the people had done, but because God wanted to, and in his glory determined to do so. So God's glory permeates the entire book. That is the most prominent theme of the book. But a second theme that occurs frequently is God's holiness. God's holiness. As with most of the prophets, the Pentateuch factors largely into the message that God gives to his people. God dwelled among his people in the tabernacle, and he gave explicit instructions for how to survive in his holy presence uh, in the midst of their, their desert wanderings. We can especially see These instructions for holiness and cleanliness in Leviticus, which were instructions for the priesthood that Ezekiel would have been very familiar with. However, Israel cast aside the law. They cast aside all the commands found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
And so they received the curses that were prominently described in these books as well. God's primary condemnation for Israel in the book of Ezekiel is that they have profaned his holiness, bringing uncleanness into what should have been clean and pure. And this defiling of God's holiness leads God to cast the people into exile. But his holiness is not done working. That's just the first way that it works. At least six times in the book, God says that he will vindicate or manifest his holiness in restoring the people, showing that his holiness means he is different. He is distinct. He does things his way, and that means judging sin, but it also means restoring his people. The world will know that he is God and he is holy. So holiness is a major theme in the book. A third theme that factors heavily is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. The foolish rulers and false prophets in Judah challenged God's authority. And God demonstrated that he was in charge when he brought Jerusalem to the ground. The nations challenged God's authority. They challenged his sovereignty, becoming inflamed in their own pride that they had survived, scoffing at the seeming failure of God's power to protect his people. But God is over all. And the messages of judgment upon the nations that we find in chapters 25 through 32 show that God is pulling the strings of the rulers of these nations. God controls their future. When the nations rise up against God and his people in chapters 38 and 39, even there it is God who raises them up. and It is God who brings them to nothing. And then finally, when God shows his plan to restore and dwell amongst his people, he refers to his place of dwelling as his throne. God is the sovereign ruler of Israel in the entire world. And you see that throughout Ezekiel. A fourth theme is God's love and salvation. His love and salvation. God cannot reveal his nature without revealing his unending love that has the desire and the power to save. And in a book that is so filled with rebuke and confrontation and judgment, it is astounding to encounter the consistent, repeated messages of God's love throughout Ezekiel. Often occurring directly after an oracle of judgment, these messages reassured the people, and they showed the depths of God's love. You can find passages like this in chapter 6, and 11, and 14, and 16, and 18, and 20, and 28, and 34, and 36, and 37, and 39, just to name a few. It occurs over and over and over, this message of God's love and salvation. And the message of these passages <clears throat> emphasize how God will save his people by doing for them what they cannot do for themselves. Listen to what he says in chapter 11. This is verse 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. God saves his people by going to them, 
by bringing them back, by giving them a new heart, and by placing his own spirit within them. Israel has shown their incapacity. The nations have shown their inability. But anyone who turns to God will be turned by God. He will bring them back. And Ezekiel shows that God delights when he does this. It's not reluctant, but it is, it is his desire. And God repeatedly says throughout the book, I'm not doing this for your sake, but for mine. He does it for his glory and because it is what he delights in doing, in showing this love and salvation. salvation. And the salvation brings up the final prominent theme of Ezekiel, which is restoration. Restoration. As you read through the book, you will find that nearly every mention of the uncleanness and unholiness of the people is not just left in the spiritual realm, but it's in the physical realm. Israel is not merely unholy. Their unholiness has defiled the land. They are not merely unclean. They have made the temple unclean. They are not merely judged spiritually. They are judged physically by being removed from God's promised land. And they will not merely be restored spiritually, they will be restored physically by being brought into the promised land in a glorious restoration. Counting conservatively, I found 26 different passages that describe the reason for God's judgment or the means of his restoration in terms of Israel's promised land. And in the passage we read from chapter 11, you heard that not only will God give Israel a new heart and a new spirit, he will also restore them to their land. And this is the common refrain in the many other passages describing God's restoration from Israel as well. God, reacting to how Israel has made the land unholy and unclean, demonstrates his glory. First, by casting them out of that land, and then second, by bringing them back. This time, fixing their hearts so that they can reside as a clean, holy, sanctified people in the land. All the hints that God gives of what he will do culminate in chapters 40 through 48 in a description of how God will restore the people to the land and his glory to the temple. And this is not just in the initial return from exile that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. This is in the future miraculous restoration of Israel to their promised land in the future millennial kingdom. So those are the purpose and themes of Ezekiel. God gave us this book to manifest his nature to Israel and to the nations. And he does so especially by highlighting his glory, his holiness, his sovereignty, his love and his desire to save and his restoration. And with our remaining time, we'll briefly trace the purpose and themes throughout the outline of the book. Now, the outline can be split into three different sections, three big sections. Uh, The first of these is chapters 1 through 24, which could be titled Judgment on Israel. Judgment on Israel in chapters 1 through 24. The book starts with Ezekiel, the priest who should be beginning his ministry, sitting in exile, when he is suddenly caught up in a magnificent vision of the glory of God. And chapter 1 is filled with descriptions of the incomprehensible glory that Ezekiel sees, and it sets the tone for the book with the nature of God's glory. Chapter 2 reinforces God's significance and Ezekiel's insignificance when God calls him son of man, 
God refers to the prophet by this term 95 times in the book. And he uses it <clears throat> to indicate Ezekiel's humanity. <clears throat> God is just calling him, you son of a man, you human. He's saying, you are a human, and I am God. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Ezekiel is a mere man. And this is re-emphasized in chapters 2 and 3 as God commands Ezekiel. <coughs> Excuse me. As God commands Ezekiel to obey implicitly whatever God commands him to do. The nation of Israel has failed in this task, but Ezekiel is God's priest. He is God's watchman. He is called to proclaim a message to the nations and to live it out in his own obedience. Chapter 3 ends with another reminder of God's glory, as Ezekiel is so overcome by this vision that it takes him a full seven days to recover from what he has seen. Chapters 4 through 7 describe the first symbols that Ezekiel was given to proclaim God's message. He builds a model of Jerusalem and symbolizes the coming siege. He lies on his side every day for nearly a year and a half to symbolize the extent of the coming judgment. He cooks a meal over excrement to show what living conditions will be like. He cuts his beard to show the nature of the judgment. And Ezekiel obeys these extreme commands and powerfully visualizes God's coming judgment. Chapters 8 through 11 are potentially the most depressing messages of the book. As the Spirit of God lifts Ezekiel up out of Babylon and brings him to Judah to see what is going on in the nation, specifically in the temple. The Spirit brings Ezekiel closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, taking him through the temple and showing him at each stage the increasing level of idolatry until he plays his final card by showing the men turning their backs on God to worship the Son. God's judgment upon this sin unfolds in chapter 9 as God begins systematically killing idolaters. But it is chapter 10 when the truly demoralizing event is captured. God's glory departs the temple. It moves out of the temple stage by stage, bit by bit, and it departs to the east, just like Adam and Eve were cast out to the east of the Garden of Eden when they sinned. Israel has lost what epitomizes them as a nation, the very presence of God. And yet, as we looked at before, this section showing the depths of the tragedy is concluded by God's unbelievable promise in chapter 11 that he will restore his people, not only bringing them back into the land, but in dwelling with them, dwelling in them, in that spirit, that new heart and new spirit that God will give them. In this message of extreme judgment comes a message of unbelievable hope. Chapters 12 through 19 are aimed at answering objections to Ezekiel's message, both from leaders amongst the exiles and from the messages of the false prophets who were in Judah. And these chapters focus on how the false prophets, the unholy priests, the unjust leaders, how they have failed the nation. Here, God doubles down on the validity of his message, confirming that Jerusalem would be destroyed specifically because of the sins of these leaders. And yet the people are condemned in kind for following their leaders as each person is responsible for their own sin. 
Chapters 20 through 24 provide further evidence for why God is bringing judgment on his people and further description of what that will look like. And in chapter 24, we find that Judah's sin, their gross infidelity, has indeed led to the promised judgment. Chapter 24, verses 1 and 2 says, In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. God then uses Ezekiel to give another vivid image of God's perspective towards this. He tells the prophet that his wife will die, and he is not permitted to mourn. Why? Why can he not mourn at this incredibly sad event in his own personal life? That's to show that as God destroys his nation, his city, his sanctuary, the people are not permitted to mourn its destruction. Rather, they are to reflect on their iniquity that led to this destruction. And Ezekiel obeys perhaps his most difficult command yet. And God reminds him that he is a sign to the people so that they will know that he is the Lord. It's truly remarkable to see the prophet's obedience throughout the book. It stands in a stark contrast to the disobedience of Israel. But he fulfills his task to the nth degree. Now, as we mentioned before, this siege of Jerusalem mentioned in chapter 24 is the fulcrum for the structure of the book. The first 24 chapters contain prophecy about the forthcoming destruction of the city, and now that siege has begun. Now in chapters 25 through 32, now that the judgment is beginning, God turns his face outward. He has vindicated his holiness in judging the sin in his own people, but now he will vindicate his holiness in honoring his covenant to always bless his people and curse their enemies. And this second section in the book, chapters 25 through 32, could be titled Judgment on the Nations. Judgment on the Nations. In these chapters, we find Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, and Egypt condemned because they have celebrated Judah's fall and they have scoffed at the Lord who brought it about. Tyre and Egypt get greater attention in these descriptions as they each have several chapters of judgment focused against them. Tyre is especially condemned for their economic status in supplying the worldly goods to all the nations of the world. And their pride and arrogance and their economic affluence lead to their undoing. Chapter 28 contains a poetic description of the pride of the king of Tyre, a description that has so much Edenic imagery that it appears to describe his fall in terms of Satan falling from glory. And this chapter condemns the king of Tyre, but it also condemns and describes the one whose example he followed, the prototype of one who gloried in himself and experienced the consequences. And the message is clear from these chapters. God is sovereign, and he will not share his glory with another. But then we come to chapter 33. After prophesying that Jerusalem would fall, and after receiving word that it was under siege, the messenger finally comes in chapter 33, verse 21. And as we mentioned before, God preempted this messenger, this fugitive from Judah, by giving Ezekiel an unbelievable set of messages, proclaiming his love for Israel and his plan to restore them. 
Listen to some of God's promises from chapters 34 through 37. Chapter 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Number 16. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. Chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And then 37, verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, can you imagine being an exile waiting for news to come, whether your homeland has been destroyed, perhaps wondering about whether your loved ones still there are alive, perhaps doubting even whether the God in whom you trust actually loves you. These are the words that God gave to Ezekiel to speak to the people. These are the incredible depths of God's love in the face of this unbelievable situation for the exiles. And perhaps the pinnacle of this message of hope comes in chapter 37, where Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones. God restores these bones, physically in giving them sinews and flesh, and spiritually in breathing life, his spirit, into them. And this graphically demonstrated the promise he had been making all along through the book. Not only would he restore his nation, these dry bones of Israel, not only would he restore them to the land, he would also dramatically save all of Israel. And that's really how you could describe this last section of the book, chapters 33 to 48, as restoration for Israel. Restoration for Israel. After the vision of the dry bones in chapter 37, in chapters 38 and 39, God turns back to the nations as we see how he will raise up Gog, who is the ruler of Magog, and incite him into rebellion against his holy nation, Israel. Though Gog musters the sinful power of the entire world against him, they are no match for God's sovereign power, which utterly destroys them. Again, to an audience of exiles who are sitting under a foreign power, this message would have instilled unbelievable hope. Things look bleak now, but God is over Gog. He is over Babylon. He is over all of our enemies. And he will accomplish his purposes. And the book of Ezekiel ends with a final vision, which comes many years after the rest of the visions of the book. The prophecies in chapters 33 through 39 came in the 12th year of the exile, around 585 B.C. Chapters 40 through 48 are not described to Ezekiel until the 25th year of exile, which is around 573 B.C. That's... 13 years later after the previous ones. And at this point, Ezekiel is 50 years old. And this is the time when his priestly service would have been coming to an end. And God brings it to an end 
with an incredible vision of the reconstitution of the temple. In chapters 40 through 48, we find in minute detail Ezekiel measuring many aspects of this new temple. He then sees the pinnacle of this entire section, which is the return of the glory of the Lord to the temple, to Israel. In a reversal of the departure of his glory in chapters 10 and 11, we see the glorious return in chapter 43. Let me read the first five verses of that chapter. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. Remember, east is the way that God's glory had departed. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's glory comes from the east and dwells once again with his people. And chapter 47 describes a further implication of his presence, that water begins flowing from the place of God's presence and creates a massive river in the nation. And this river has restorative properties. It gives life, so much so that when it encounters the Dead Sea, which is currently uninhabitable by anything, it turns that Dead Sea into a place of fresh water that produces and sustains life. And the restoration of Israel to their land is also vividly described in chapters 47 and 48, showing that God will indeed bring his people back to their promised land. And these chapters describe the millennial kingdom, when God will majestically restore Israel to the land with an incredible spiritual revival. He will reestablish his presence on earth in a new temple, similar to what has come before, but not exact. And he will reconstitute the tribes of Israel, again, in similar position to how they were before, but not exact. God even changes the geography as we know it, introducing this new life-giving river into the center of the nation. And the elements we find here will then become even more incredible in the eternal state, when there is not even the need for a temple, and when sin and enemies no longer linger at the periphery. Now, these chapters are not quite as straightforward as I've just stated them to you. It would take us an entirely new Sunday School series to do justice to all the details of these chapters and adequately address all the questions that we encounter when reading them. And I do want to acknowledge that many good people interpret these chapters symbolically, seeing that there's just too many difficulties to reconcile with this new temple being established in the future. And so they would interpret the chapters talking about Christ. Uh, they would interpret this temple as Christ dwelling with us or just as descriptive symbolically of what God's presence with his people is like. But given the consistent message throughout the book that God would not only restore Israel spiritually, but also physically, I found that it makes the most sense to take this instead as the glorious pinnacle of God's plan to restore Israel to the land and restore his glory in the midst of his people physically. This appears to be a real temple, and seeing God reestablish his presence in the temple amongst the people should encourage even us, just as it would have encouraged the people in exile. Ezekiel is a tour de force. It's overwhelming to read about God revealing his nature, his glory, his holiness, 
But even as it is overwhelming, it is always worth it. And it should always leave us wanting to come back for more. Throughout all of the judgment, Ezekiel shows us that God's glory and holiness move him to love and to save. And we have so much to look forward to as we long for the return of Christ to bring us into eternity in his glorious presence. And this is the note that the book of Ezekiel ends on, almost abruptly. A hopeful note, longing for the presence of God in our midst. The last verse of the book, chapter 48, verse 35, says, And the name of the city from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. And let that be our longing this morning, to be with the Lord who is there. You are dismissed.